picking up where we left off last week. It's a constant reminder that you know we're here and so many are probably still at home sleeping because we get to feast upon the Word of God. And so when you come here this morning, you, you're coming for a feast to dine on a banquet table, the likes of which the world never gets to see, uh, to feast on the glories of Jesus Christ as seen in His Word. You don't need charades on Sunday morning. You don't need uh, show-and-tell time. You don't need props for your amusement. You don't need emotionally charged moralisms full of platitudes that sound good but don't really have any substance. You don't need current events, anecdotes, poems, or cliches. You need the Word of God unadulterated, read through the lens of Jesus Christ. And what the book of Hebrews tells us time and time again is that the first two-thirds of the book that you have in your hands this morning are not just a relic of ancient history. They are a testimony to the prophetic promise that the three offices of Israel are culminated in Jesus Christ. Remember those offices? They weren't merely for the moral, civil, and ceremonial functions of Israel for perpetuity. No. They were inaugurated to foreshadow the saving role of Jesus Christ. And we've seen some of those as we've been going through the book of Hebrews. The greater king of 2 Samuel 7, the greater prophet of Deuteronomy 18, and the greater priest of Psalm 110. In fact, there are entire chapters of Hebrews written to develop that final point, that Jesus is a superior priest. And the author does this through a series of arguments that we find ourselves in the middle of today. If you recall, he demonstrated that Jesus is of a superior priestly order. According to Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, it wasn't limited to ancestry or time because it was of the superior order of Melchizedek. And to sort of recap chapter 7, to get us back into the context of the chapter, we see this as a testimony of the superiority of Christ over Aaron and over the entire Aaronic line, the Levitical priesthood. First, Aaron was but a man. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's verse 3. And he'll repeat that again to close out the chapter in verse 28. So it sort of bookends this entire section. We saw Aaron belonged to the tribe of Levi. Christ, according to the flesh, sprang from a more royal tribe, the tribe of Judah, Hebrews 7.14. He's a priest king. Third, we saw Aaron was made a priest by a law of physical requirement, but Christ After the power of an indestructible life, verse 16, Aaron made nothing perfect, but Christ's priesthood perfects us, verse 19. Aaron was unable to bring the sinner into the presence of God. Christ gets us there. In all that summary, we learn that all the details, the ceremony, the repetition of the old covenant priesthood, it couldn't get the job done. It never brought people near to God. It was weak and it was useless and was only there as a shadow to prefigure the substance. Now remember, this wasn't an oversight on God's part. Like, oh, well, plan plan A failed, so I guess I'll have to go along with plan B. No, not at all. It was intended that way all along. To prefigure a better priest who would get the job done because of his illimitable life and his superior excellencies. So we have to ask ourselves, why is Jesus's efficacious priesthood so much greater when none of these other priests could ever complete anything 
You might be thinking, well, so Peter, you're telling me that not one sin, not one priest in the history of the world, not one priest in all of Israel's history efficaciously removed even a partial sin from the people? No, not a single one. In our last few times together, we've been considering that comparison between the old covenant Levitical priesthood and the new covenant priesthood of Jesus Christ according to the order of Melchizedek. This section of the epistle has a design. We kind of have to keep reinforcing in our minds so we don't lose sight of the argument and the, the climactic statements that it's building up to. The apostle has two main points that he's been making. First, he's demonstrating that the great high priest of Christianity is far more excellent than the typological high priest of Judaism. And that because of the superior priesthood, the faith of the Hebrews might be established in their hearts and they might be drawn out in love and worship to him alone. Second, that it's only of necessity that if God brings about in a new order of priesthood that the old order is completely set aside. You see, you can't have both Judaism and Christ. One is authentic, the other obsolete. If the old system is in place, then Jesus is illegitimate. But if Jesus is legit, then the old system is done away. So this morning, I want to consider one more major contrast. It is a contrast, and I just want to meditate upon just this one thing because it's such good news for us here today. So today I want to begin to show you what it's about, Jesus' efficacy as high priest that supersedes the erotic line, and again, we're going to see the answer of that demonstrates the unalterable, immutable promises of God. He actually gives three proofs for this. It's Hebrews 7, 20 to 22, which is where we'll be this morning. He gives a second one in Hebrews 7, 23 to 25, which we will look at next week, and then he has a third and final one, which is Hebrews 7, 26 to 28. But for this morning, I'm just going to look at the first of those three arguments. And here we see a glorious contrast between Jesus and the Levitical priests. We see it's based on an oath, a surety, and a better covenant. So that's going to be our outline today. Oath, surety, and better covenant. Let me read it for us. Hebrews 7, 20 to 22. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much. The more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. In the mind of the Jews, the priest in the Jewish religion, he was par excellence. What room is there for another one when he was so great? Well, friends, there's been a great change wrought by God. No longer was there the need for the type when the antitype has appeared. Symbols and shadows have served their purpose when the substance has made himself manifest. The things of childhood are put away when manhood is reached. A crutch is dispensed when a limb is restored. When that which is perfect has come, we don't need the partial anymore. We get to peer into the excellency of this great high priest today. 
Now, I want to demonstrate for you the immutability of God's decree here, the unalterable veracity of his promise. Let's just take one step back and look at one thing. Hebrews 7, 17. So that's a verse we looked at last week, but let me point out something for you. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, how important is this? Well, the author of Hebrews has cited Psalm 110, verse 4, four times in three chapters. Hebrews 5, 6, Hebrews 6, 20, Hebrews 7, 17, and then our text today, Hebrews 7, 21. But I have to show you something very important about this. In Hebrews 5, 6, 6, 20, and 7, 17, which I just read to you, the author actually leaves out the first part of the verse. The verse doesn't begin, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let me read it for you. Psalm 110, verse 4. It reads like this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So what's happening here? Is he twisting the scripture and just using whatever he wants to make his point? No, nothing of the sort. Rather, he's been explaining the second half of that verse and sort of holding back on expositing the first half until it's appropriate to explain the nature of what the Father has said concerning the Son. You see, it doesn't make a lot of sense to explain the nature of the decree, that it's fixed, immutable, it's unalterable, without first explaining the substance of what it's about, the priesthood of the Son. So this declaration was not without context. It it was not just a floating clump of words that he kind of draws and uses whatever he wants. So he's drawing us back to the beginning, the citation that he's been explaining all along, and he tells us this important point, it's not without an oath. Other priests became priests without an oath, but Jesus Christ became a priest with an oath. And we're actually going to see three things about this oath that are vital in this text. We're going to look at its nature. We're going to look at its timing. We're going to look at its manifestation and revelation. But I want us just to start there. Let's ponder the nature of this oath. I mean, do you see the dramatic difference that's given to us in our text? God confirmed the son's priesthood with an oath. Now, why? In order to highlight for us that there never has been nor ever shall be a priest quite like this. You can survey Exodus 20 and 29. You can look at Leviticus 8 and 9. And you see, God through Moses never says the ironic, the Levitical priesthood was permanent. It was never guaranteed with an oath. You know, it had a starting date and it had an expiration date for each successive priest. There's no oath. It was of the design of God, but it was never with an oath, meaning it wasn't intended to last forever. The contrast is inescapable. The author calls our attention to a most significant and deeply important truth in the prophecy that's given to David in Psalm 110, which is this, that Christ was constituted a priest by divine oath, which exalts him above all other priests that were born under the law. Another point that we should observe here, isn't it marvelous continuously as we're going through the book of Hebrews to see his method of argumentation He always makes appeals to Scripture as the basis of truth. And I really like that. Do you notice that? I mean, every truth he makes, he goes to a text and shows where it's given. And it just shows the divine comprehensiveness of the Word of God. 
In a few words, we see the unsearchable storehouses of wisdom and truth that are laid up in every text of Scripture. He spent multiple chapters citing from this one verse, which just underlines, it testifies to the verbal inspiration of Scripture that every phrase, every word is written by divine wisdom and has value and meaning. In Psalm 110, the dignity of Christ's sacred office corresponds with the seriousness of his appointment to it. Nothing was lacking on the part of God to give preeminence and stability to the priesthood of the Son, not without an oath. The Son of God in infinite grace condescends to take upon himself the priestly office to discharge all of its duties. And so it's only fitting for this kind of priest to have something comparable to him, to testify to his superiority. And what do we see here? We see God demonstrates for us the jealousy he has for the honor of his son to be preeminent. In everything that he undertook, he was preferred above all others who ever gave service to God. So he was made a priest with an oath. There were many things defective in the priesthood under the law. We looked at some of those last time. Remember, it suited the design of God that the old covenant priests were imperfect, that they were temporary, that they were anticipatory. He never intended the faith of the church to terminate on those priests. So the first contrast is this. The priesthood of Aaron was not instituted with an oath. Christ's was. What we see connected with the oath here is it's connected to the nature of the oath giver. Because God is immutable and will not change his mind, boom, that's the nature of the oath right there. Look, who makes the oath? It's his nature that's telling us a lot about it. It reminds us of Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man who lies or a son of man who changes his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? Promises, oaths, swearings. When they're ascribed to God, it's never on a trivial account. It's always in matters of vital importance. He used it for his love for his people. He used it for his covenant with them. He swears an oath for the mission of the son to be the redeemer. And here we have an oath for his priestly office. This office, friends, the oath with the office was not made for the sake of Christ as if he needed a promise. No, the oath is on the account of the heirs of the promise for our consolation. Again, this exemplifies the dignity, the validity, the importance, the singularity of Christ's priesthood above all else. I mean, think about this. I can't give an oath to two parties for the same thing without it being at the expense of one or both, right? And guess what? When God gives his word, when he swears his oath, he doesn't repent. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute. Isn't what we're seeing here all about God changing his mind? I mean, is that what we're seeing here, that God changed his mind from the old covenant to the new covenant? Is that what's going on? No, nothing of the sort. Changing a plan, repentance, can never be properly ascribed to God for any account. For it is contrary to his holiness, to his righteousness, to his happiness, to his immutability, to his omniscience, to his omnipotence, and we could go on. It is not a property that can be truly described of deity. So what's happening here? Well, anytime we see what appears to be repentance or a change of plan when ascribed to God, 
Theologians like to call those occurrences in Scripture anthropomorphisms, which is where we improperly talk about God as if he were a man. We see it all the time, right, in Scripture. God has a strong hand, an outstretched arm. He has eyes that are everywhere, but he has none of those physical features because God is a spirit. So phrases like that we call anthropomorphisms. An anthropomorphism is a figure of speech used in Scripture, and it comes from two Greek compound words. Anthropos, the word for man, and morphe, the word for form. So it literally means the form of a man. But guess what? It's always an accommodation by God to help us understand, to get a sense of his incomprehensible nature. But guess what, friends? God tells us something here, that he's not like us, that he doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. And so it is abundantly clear that God will not repent or change his mind in the sense of the priesthood of his son, nor of his oath, that it would continue forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Friends, God does not repent. He gave his word. He's going to make it good. As we look at these verses, again, we see this contrast over and over again. Again, two priesthoods being contrasted. We're seeing it throughout the whole chapter. The Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Moses, of the Mosaic covenant, the priesthood of the old covenant administration of God's promises to Abraham, of his offspring, uh, the priests who served in the tabernacle, in the, tent, in the temple. They offered the sacrifices on behalf of God's people, the priesthood that can never perfect God's people. It's being contrasted with the priesthood of Christ. According to the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of the irrevocable promise of grace, the priesthood of the new covenant administration of God's promises to Abraham and his offspring, the priesthood that does perfect God's people. Hebrews is saying that God established Christ in his office as a priest in a different manner than he established the Levites in their offices as priests. Christ's was appointed with the word of an oath. The Levites were not appointed this way. Now, real quick, look at Hebrews 28, 7, 28. We're going to look at this, but it helps us here. Hebrews 7, 28. For the law, and in this context we've seen, that's the old covenant, the law for priests given to Moses, appoints men as priests who are weak. That means they're sinners, they died. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Now we kind of have to ask some questions about this text. What does he mean, the word of the oath came after the law? First, let me tell you what it does not mean. He does not mean that the father gave the oath to the son historically after the law was given to Moses. He does not mean that after seeing the whole arrangement with Moses wasn't really working out the way he wanted, it wasn't delivering the goods, he made a new plan to send the son. No. So what is he saying? He's saying the word of the oath given after the law is when the son was revealed to us. It's not speaking of when the oath was made, but when the oath was made manifest, when it was revealed in history to us. Now look back at Hebrews 7.21. The Lord has sworn oath, will not change his mind. God cannot change his mind. You are a priest forever. So when was this oath sworn? This is very important for our understanding of this work of the high priest. 
Now remember, we distinguish between two aspects of the same thing here, namely the divine decree and the revelation or declaration of it. So when was the oath itself given? When was it actually given? Well, friends, that takes us back to those eternal federal transactions between the Father and the Son when the everlasting covenant was made. It was revealed to us prophetically in Psalm 110 through David. But again, this is where that really important distinction comes in because many modern commentaries get this wrong. Okay, They take the oath as something that takes place after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And I want you to see why that is such a damning error to hold. That's the opposite of what he's testifying to here. Think about it. Had Christ offered his sacrifice before God swore him into his office as priest, he would have made a sacrifice worse than the Levitical priests because he would be offering an illegitimate sacrifice. Friends, only a priest can make a sacrifice. So the oath must precede his entrance to his priestly office, and the office must precede the sacrifice that he makes. So the priesthood of Jesus was revealed to us in the historical period after the Mosaic law, but he entered into that office long ago, before the sacrifices were ever made. So he is a real mediator to everyone who has ever been saved from Genesis to the end of the earth. His priesthood transcends those things. Let me just ponder about the quote in Psalm 110. King David is giving us some great revelation here. The oath from the Father to the Son revealed to David, to his people, David lived after the giving of the law, the Mosaic Covenant. He was a king during the Mosaic Covenant. And he prophetically tells us what the Father promised the Son in eternity. David tells us the Father made a covenant with the Son, an oath to send him to be the Redeemer, the High Priest. And when the Father promised this to the Son, the Father swore. He made him a priest with an oath. Now, again, why is the oath significant? Because if God swears an oath, it makes the thing final. The oath demonstrates the nature of God's purpose. It's unchangeable. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to change his mind. So when God gives an oath, this purpose is unchanging. It's confirmed. Friends, his oath is money in the bank. From the earliest days back with Abraham, there existed a superior priesthood a king priest in Psalm 110, before the Levitical priesthood was even obsolete. There has always been a superior priest. And in order to demonstrate his superiority, the superiority of the priesthood of the Son, God swears an oath. We have to see this. Remember, God is entering into oaths lightly. He's not obligated to give it. And you know what? God is truth itself. Truth, veracity. It's not something outside of God with which you can measure him to see if he's been truthful or not. No, God is truth. God is veracity. It is his very nature. What he says, he does. There's no question about that. He doesn't have to add an oath to make it more guaranteeable or reliable. So again, why the oath? Not just to establish the superiority of the son. Certainly does that. But to accommodate the unreliability of men. It's for the sake of us that he swears an oath. 
You see, the Jews lived in a world much like ours. Even the best of men, the best politicians, the best parents, the best people who we know who have lived before us, even us and ourselves in this room, we know we've all lied. We're raised in a world given to dishonesty and duplicity and to overcome our experiential bent of disbelief. God accommodates us and he gives an oath. God makes a promise and he doubles it down with an oath. You know how sure God wants you to be? He swears an oath according to the very immutability of his essence. He will not change his mind. I mean, the very essence of God is at stake here. God would have to unbe himself, ungod God, in order for this to fail. That's what he's telling us. And this oath is revealed for us, for our security and faith, for our assurance. The promise of the Son coming to save us cannot be changed. See, Moses' covenant was good, but it was temporary. The old covenant priests were good, but they were transitionary. The plan of redemption between the Father and the Son is better because it's a permanent, inviolable, unshakable, eternal truth. And that eternal plan of redemption between the Father and the Son was manifest in history as a promise of grace in Genesis 3.15. We see it continually reaffirmed in Abraham, in Moses, in David. A covenant which is unchangeable, unbreakable, inviolable, and eternal. God is our God, and we will be his people. Every other benefit of the work of Christ serves that glorious end. And God gave this covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God gave this covenant with an oath, so that again, an immutable, inviolable, unbreakable covenant has occurred. Abraham and his offspring received the covenant blessings. I will be your God. You will be my people. And Abraham's offspring is Jesus Christ. And all of those who trust in him are heirs to that very same promise. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He didn't say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to and to your seed, that is Christ. So again, when did the father swear this oath, the promise to the son? Well, Psalm 2.7. I will surely tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are a son. Today I have begotten you. That pact stood with an oath made in eternity, dear friends. One act of the divine will in eternity revealed in time for our sakes. Now we must move on to our second and third comparisons a little more briefly. Both of which are found in Hebrews 7.22. So because of this oath, the text says, Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, these are the last two contrasts we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the nature of the guarantee, and we're going to look at the better covenant. Now, remember, we have to distinguish between the covenant that God made with men concerning Christ, like Abraham, for example, and the oath that he made with his son concerning men. Leave that distinction in our minds as we move along in the text, because they're not the same, and we're going to see why. So, What's a guarantee? I mean, isn't the oath a guarantee enough? You know, our English isn't very helpful here because we use that word guarantee like you give your word, like making a promise, similar to your word is your bond or a covenant. We use the word guarantee like an oath in English language, but that's not what the word actually means. 
It's not a guarantee, it's a guarantor. So what is a guarantor? I think it's better translated by an old word we don't use all that much, surety. Jesus is the surety, the guarantor of a better covenant. So what is that? The Greek word for surety or guarantor is used in legal documents or promissory documents for one who stands as security. It only occurs here in the entire New Testament. In other words, this is the one, the one who himself guarantees or secures the promise. He makes sure the covenant will not be annulled. It can't be brought to an end. What is said here is an extreme contrast to what we saw with the Levitical priesthood because their entire system is set aside. It's annulled. If you look back at Hebrews 7.18, that's what it tells us. The law, the Mosaic covenant was put aside. The word for annulment because it was weak and useless. So the old system didn't have an oath. It didn't have a guarantor. It didn't have a surety to make sure that it wasn't set aside. No Levitical priest could stand as surety because guess what? His life is fragile. He can't guarantee anything because he could die today. He could die tomorrow. He can't control his own life. So how could he ever be a guarantor? Well, friends, he can't. And that's the stark contrast we see right here. That is why it was weak and useless. It was that way because it could not perfect Christ's people. Hebrews 7, 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Do you see the language there? The law could not secure the promises. Moses' covenant could not secure the blessing that only the son the son of God, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the son of David could secure. Ultimately, Moses' covenant could not secure for us a better hope through which we draw near to God. It lacked a surety. Moses' covenant could not in and of itself guarantee the promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. It could not because the son of God, the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the son of David, is the only one who could be a surety. Jesus himself is our surety that there will be no annulment of this new and better covenant. And that is why Jesus is a guarantor of a better covenant. He is our surety, friends. You might be wondering, well, how is he our surety? Well, in case you forgot, let me remind you. He made good on what we could not. He lived a perfectly righteous, law-keeping life he atoned for our sins on the cross. He resurrected from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Father has given him a greater kingdom. He reconciles us to God. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our peace with God. He has poured out his Holy Spirit. He gives us new life. He intercedes for us forever. He holds us in his hand to where we can never be taken. He keeps us secure to the end. He entered behind the veil in heaven as our forerunner, he is the captain of our salvation who has carried us there and he has anchored us in heaven. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who returned to judge the living and the dead. He will resurrect us from the dead. He is the one who will reward us and friends, he will be our great reward. He is our surety of a better covenant. Again, the word Surety or guarantors used in legal settings. Again, in the ancient world, it's like the term we use today for a cosigner. 
You know what a cosigner is, don't you? If your credit isn't great, or if you don't have any credit history, then a bank or a lender will give a loan to you on the basis of someone else's credit. A cosigner, a guarantor, a surety. So on the basis of the surety, there's credibility. Now this word for surety is similar to a word which we've talked about already. It's spoken of more in Hebrews chapter 8, but it's familiar to you, the word mediator. Hebrews 8, 6. He is the mediator of a better covenant. In our text, he is the surety of a better covenant. In chapter 8, he's the mediator of a better covenant, but those two things are not identical. Let me explain. A mediator is someone who stands in the gap for reconciliation. A mediator we looked at last time according to both natures, right? A surety, though, is one who on the basis of his own credibility, at the cost of his own life, will ensure that the result will come about. So the surety is a sponsor for another. Standing in the room or acting for the one who is incompetent to act for himself. He represents the other person. He pledges to make good all their arrangements. So Christ is not a surety for God. God needs no surety. But for his poor, failing and deficient people who are unable to meet their obligations, incapable of discharging all their liabilities, Christ agreed to undertake for them to be their surety, to fulfill all their debts and completely satisfy every demand that God has on them to be their surety. Now we see a beautiful illustration of this in the Old Testament. In Genesis 43, you can go ahead and turn there. There's a great example. I want you to kind of see some of this for yourself. Genesis 43. What's interesting, the Greek Septuagint uses the same word as we have here in the New Testament for surety. So Genesis 43, let me give you kind of the backstory real briefly. Remember, Jacob has 12 sons. One of them gets sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt. That's Joseph. And what's happened here is there's a great massive famine in the land. In fact, it's so bad that Jacob has to send his kids who are starving because they have no food. So he sends his sons to go get food from Egypt, and he actually does it two times. And we're in the second time here in Genesis 43, and they come before Joseph, who they don't recognize, right? the one they sold into slavery, and they need more food. They need, and they're told this, they're told that they need to bring their younger brother if they want any help. Genesis 43, verse 3. The man solemnly warned us, you shall not even see my face again unless your brother is with you. Whew. See, Benjamin was back home. When the brothers went to relay their message to their father, Jacob said he wouldn't allow Benjamin to go, Right? Because remember, he already trusted one son to this motley crew and he lost Joseph. So he's not taking chances and letting him to lose a second son. So what do we see? Verse nine. Verse nine. Judah steps up and goes in his place and he explains this. He says this. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible. If I don't bring him back to you and send him before you, then Let me bear the blame for all my life, forever. Judah became a surety, a guarantee. He said, Dad, you can hold me personally responsible for the life of my brother. If I don't bring him back to you, it's on my life. It's on me. I promise the safety of Benjamin. On my life, he says. And on that guarantee, Jacob 
allows Judah to take Benjamin. Now turn over to chapter 44. You don't have to go very far. What do we see? They're given all the grain they can carry, right? And Joseph puts a golden cup in the bags that are being carried by Benjamin in verse 2. 44 verse 2. So on their way out of town, the bags are searched and the cup is discovered, right? The cup is discovered. They were all told that they have to go back and answer for this crime. He's just given you all this grain. Why are you stealing from the king? And Joseph says, on account of this, Benjamin must stay. Everyone else can go, but Benjamin's got to stay, and he's got to be a slave for his crimes. But Judah made a guarantee. So what does he say? Verse 32. For I, Judah, became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. Now, therefore, please let me remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. Let me stay in the place of the boy. Judah was guaranteeing that his brother would return safely, even at the expense of his own life, a life of slavery. That's the idea here. Jesus is not only the mediator of a new covenant. He is, yes and amen. But he is the surety, the guarantor of a new covenant. Now, why is that so significant? Again, what do we know about the old covenant? Hebrews 7, 18, it was weak and useless. Verse 19, it made nothing perfect. It couldn't complete God's plan of redemption. It couldn't guarantee anything. In fact, it couldn't even guarantee its own perpetuity. Remember, it became obsolete, verse 18. It's set aside. That's the Greek term for null and void. But Jesus stands as surety that the new covenant will never be null and void. We see a similar concept in the New Testament. Hopefully this came to mind as you're thinking about Judah. Paul volunteered to be a surety for Onesimus. In the book of Philemon, we see a slave, Onesimus, wronged his master. And what does Paul say? Philemon, verses 18 and 19. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. In like manner, Christ engaged himself to the Father for his elect, saying, charge it to my account, whatever my people owe and I will fully discharge their debts. It was Christ pledging himself or making himself responsible for the fulfillment of that everlasting covenant on on behalf of all those who would ever be its benefactors. It is as the surety of the covenant that Christ is called the second man, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 47. This title then, the surety, views Christ as identifying himself with those whom the Father gave him, and on whose behalf he accomplished all this great work, John 6, 38. In their place, condemned, he stood. In their place, obedient, he lived, making full satisfaction to God. Now, let's look at the third contrast. We've seen the oath, we've seen the surety. Now, what is this better covenant? What is this better covenant that Jesus is the surety of? When Hebrews says the new covenant is better, it doesn't mean that the old covenant was bad. Moses' covenant was good. It was given by God. It was holy. It was righteous. It was good. But Moses' covenant was temporary and typological. Moses' covenant pointed forward to a better covenant. It pointed forward to Christ and the new covenant. 
Moses' covenant served a good purpose. The people of God were saved under the Mosaic covenant, but it was never by it. It was like an overseer or a guardian. Moses' covenant ministered Christ to people in and through types and shadows. But here we have it contrasted again, better. It signifies the order of things introduced by Christ. It is better contrasted with the older order of things under the Mosaic regime. The Mosaic covenant was administered by the instrumentality of the Levitical priesthood, but the covenant brought by Jesus, the Son of God. The old one, again, transitory, changing. The better one, permanent and eternal. No matter how much good there was in Moses, it could never ratify the promise of grace. Only Christ could do that and be its surety. But Moses' covenant could never secure that promise. Moses' covenant could never ratify the unchangeable covenant promises given to Abraham. Only Christ. And the new covenant that is cut in him, that he would cut with his own blood on the cross, could ratify those blessings. He secured the covenant and those blessings, so his covenant is better. And that's what we'll see is the theme of the rest of the book of Hebrews. Christ's covenant is better. His priesthood is better. His sacrifice is better. His promises are better. His hope is better and his kingdom is so much better. We have a lot of wonderful things in store for us in this book. But those last few words in chapter 22 need a little bit of attention, some meditation. A lot of times we kind of gloss over these things like we could have done with Psalm 110 verse four, but they presuppose something wonderful. We see that in some respect, the old covenant was good, right? Implied by the contrast better. The old covenant was good as the product of God's wisdom and righteousness. It served a good purpose for its statutes, helped to restrain sin among the land. It promoted godliness. Its design was good. It pointed forward to Christ. Now the whole book of Hebrews, the gospel promises this, that God has replaced the old covenant with a new one, a better covenant because it is efficacious in the way the old economy never was. Now, again, this audience that's hearing this, they were reared in Judaism. They've read the law since they could speak. They had it tied to their heads on the doorposts of their house. So no matter where they came, whether they went, wherever they go, whatever they did, the law was ever present there, hanging. The law was there. That covenant was rendered null and void. And they're like, what on earth is happening here? How will we know that this new covenant won't become obsolete? What guarantee do we have we're trusting the right things? will this covenant one day be gone away with too? And the answer is no, it cannot. And you have God's word on it at the cost of his own immutable life. It would mean that God could die for this covenant to be undone. We have a guarantor, a surety, who has sworn with his own life that the covenant will never be abolished. Again, we can take it to the bank. It's guaranteed, it's certain, it's efficacious. So what guarantees do we have that God will love you till the end? Well, God's oath that the Son, according to the priesthood, is a guarantee assurity of. He will get us the everlasting benefits of a better covenant. The author of Hebrews is reminding us something wonderful. Abraham did not draw near to God through the sacrifices of animals. He drew near to God through Jesus Christ. Moses did not draw near to God through the sacrifices of animals, he drew near to God through Jesus Christ. And today, 
the only way that you can draw near to God is through Jesus Christ. He is the only efficacious priest. He is the priest that God made an oath with in Psalm 110 that supersedes the Mosaic economy, that he would be a priest forever. And he is the only priest whose activities on your behalf are utterly unfailing and everlastingly efficacious. His sacrifice for us prevails. His redeeming for work for us forgives. His intercession for us, friends, is forever. And it's on our behalf that he perseveres. He enables us to have assurance, to, enables us to have hope, enables us to grow in grace. So he's showing how the Old Testament priesthood cannot do any of these things. And how all these things happen only in Jesus. This is the practical application. Surely, just as far as the new covenant surpasses the old, just as far as the surety of the new covenant exceeds in dignity and glory the old regime, we are promised something even greater. We have to remind ourselves of this. You know, we're under some pretty high obligations as men made in the image of God, as image bearers on this earth. We owe God perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. A more complete submission, a deeper devotion, a fuller obedience than could ever have been written down on tablets of stone. Have you ever stopped to just think about that? Jesus in his coming exposes the hypocrisy of us all. When he said, Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good for out of the mouth speaks that which fills the heart? When men thought they could keep the law, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of us all. You say, I haven't committed a murder. Jesus says, but you're angry. You say, I haven't committed adultery. He says, but you have lust in your heart. You say, well, I haven't stolen anything. You say, you do it every day when you covet others with greed. You say, well, I tried to be good. I, I tried to be kind. Maybe my good outweighs my bad. Friends, Jesus strips us bare of all excuses. For to break one part of the law is to break the whole thing. Well, friends, here it is. This is the good news of the surety of the better covenant. We have the blessed one who left heaven's glory and came to this sin-cursed earth to discharge all of our obligations and debts, who merited a reward, who suffered and died in our place as our surety. Friends, I think we can sing hallelujah, what a savior with a renewed freshness, can't we? He discharges our debts. He erases our negative ledger. He gives merit beyond compare. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for the excellency of our surety that you have given an oath that we might trust, Lord, that we might put all of our hope in him. Lord, I pray that we would meditate on the glories of the better covenant and of the priest of that better covenant. And it's in his name that we come before you today. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.